welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today we are talking about Swing Kids and we're talking about it with Carolyn Kendrick. I'm one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my tremendous co-host, Sarah Marshall. And if you typically skip the intro, please stick around for this one. We offer a few historical notes going into the episode. We offer uh, some, some thoughts, some ideas, some caveats, and of course, some content warnings uh, as this is a heavy movie. Again, we're covering Swing Kids. We're covering it with Carolyn Kendrick, as you know, or maybe you don't know. Our guests typically pick the movies, uh, but every once in a while, we'll have a scheduling conflict and we won't be able to get the episode together and we'll say, hey, what's a movie we want to cover? And that was the case this week. And Sarah just knew immediately. She's like, I want to cover Swing Kids, a movie I inexplicably loved when I was a kid. (laughs) And so we have producer Carolyn Kendrick on to unpack what this movie is about. And Carolyn, you might already know, is a musician and a performer, a songwriter. She's the best. And she just released a song called Walker Clay that you can find anywhere that music is streaming. Hey, I want to thank everyone who supports us on Patreon or an Apple podcast subscriptions. We appreciate you. This show is made possible thanks to you. And we appreciate it because we are musicians, as you just heard. We are authors. We're writers. We're journalists. We're we're all sorts of different things. And so we appreciate that you help make this show possible where we get to talk about feelings and sometimes history and swing music. And in exchange for making this possible, you get bonus episodes. Last week, I said that our next bonus episode was going to be about Weekend at Bernie's. But guess what? There was a technical blip. And so there's not going to be a Weekend at Bernie's episode. There is instead going to be a bonus episode that's just a QA. and a It's your questions that have come in via Twitter and Instagram, and we answer those questions. And that is uh, what this month's bonus episode is going to be about. So thank you for supporting us. In exchange, you get the bonus episodes. I look forward to sharing that one with you. Content warning at the top of this episode, we talk about suicide. We talk about it broadly, but also we talk about it acutely. And if that is something that you have feelings about or are struggling with, then please don't feel compelled to listen to this episode. We talk about it in passing. I think we talk about it uh, lovingly as we always try to do, but we don't want to add on to the stresses of just being alive and conscious today. Uh, There are many other episodes from our catalog to spend time with if you feel like that is going to be stressful for you. So in this episode, we end up talking a lot about the responsibility one feels, particularly those who uh, are able to blend in with the existing power structure. We talk about the feelings that people have in the face of rising authoritarianism. And we talk about how this resonates, especially now, especially in the face of not just increasing rhetoric, but of countless laws aimed at criminalizing womanhood, criminalizing being on the quote wrong side of gender binaries, criminalized being trans. In 2022, anti-Semitic incidents hit their highest level, increasing a reported 36%. Uh, And this is what we're thinking about in the context of watching this movie. We talk about how perplexing this movie is in a lot of different ways, in a lot of different contexts, but its historical context hits home now more than ever, of course. And of course, There's this ongoing, since the beginning, systemic attack against the well-being of non-white folks in this country that, again, goes back to its inception. And we largely talk about these things in a historical context, but it's obviously just extraordinarily present. We ask what, quote, doing something means in the face of systems where individual action can sometimes just feel futile. And we ask what doing, quote, enough actually looks like, if it looks like anything at all. And since having this conversation, I've enjoyed and been inspired by even more than normal seeing stuff like the Proud Boys outnumbered when coming to attack drag performances in New York. I love seeing, of course, any video of a fascist scared into any form of submission. I love everything from bail funds to legal funds to people throwing wrenches of every size into the machinery that makes living in this country hard or impossible for vulnerable people. And I picked up Wallace Shawn's play The Fever the other day without knowing exactly what it was about. And I was surprised to find that it's about a person who essentially comes face to face with the implications of their privilege and begins feverishly asking questions about their responsibility in the face of that. So these questions are very much in the air and they're very much on our minds. And we kind of just crack the surface in this conversation in this episode. 
So a few notes I wanted to offer before we dive into the episode proper. First, the character Arvid, who is portrayed by Frank Whaley, is our pure jazz aficionado character. He has a club foot, and he's a big fan of Django Reinhardt, and both of these things are historically significant for a few different reasons, and we touch on it in passing uh, within the episode, but I wanted to underscore exactly why here. Arvid's club foot and his former friend Thomas's note of it is significant because the movie takes place in 1939 and in September of 39, the Nazis will begin uh, what is called Action T4, their program of euthanizing disabled people. Over the course of the program, 200,000 people with physical or mental disabilities will be euthanized. This move, which is in line with the Nazis' eugenics aspirations, inspired the most explicit and widespread protest movements led by Catholic authorities to any policy since, at that point, the start of the Third Reich. And Hitler, in response, stopped the program publicly, but it was continued in secret. In action, T4 would inspire and help hone the technology for the move toward exterminating Jewish people, Romani people, and others considered undesirable or subhuman to the Third Reich. The other thing about Arvid that's worth noting is that he's so substantial a Django Reinhardt fan that he's referred to as Django Man. Born Jean Reinhardt, the Romani Belgian jazz artist, was known by his Romani nickname Django. His leg and his hand were disfigured in a fire. Arvid comes to share both similarities. In both his commitment to jazz and his being Romani would put him at risk in Europe with the Nazi rising. There's a lot of interesting parallels here with regard to what Django Reinhardt represents uh, in the movie and what he went through in real life. He was a jazz musician, obviously, and Goebbels stopped short of a complete ban on jazz uh, because there were so many jazz fans in Germany, regardless of how un-German jazz was considered by the Reich. Romani men were required to wear a brown uh, gypsy ID triangle sewn onto their chest. It was similar to the pink triangle that uh, queer folks had to wear or the yellow Star of David that Jews had to wear. And during the Holocaust, an estimated 600,000 to 1.5 million Romani throughout Europe were killed. That's it for background. I just wanted to make sure you knew that stuff or you had the information you needed to move forward and know more about that stuff after you listen to this episode. Thank you so much as always, for joining us on this episode of You Are Good. We appreciate that you're here. We're honored that you're here. Let's talk about Swing Kids. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Do you have any fun movies for kids to talk about today? I sure don't, but you know what I do have? Swing Kids, a movie that I almost all by myself love. Swing Kids, who is it for? Sarah Sarah Marshall. (laughs) Truly, like you seem like the market for Swing Kids. (laughs) I feel so honored that you say that. We say it all the time, but I'd have killed to have been in the pitch meeting. (laughs) (laughs) And we are blessed to be uh, visited upon by our wonderful, by our beloved producer, Carolyn Kendrick. Hello. It's wonderful to visit upon you both. It's so good to be visited upon. And I am so happy that you took this journey. And we all took it together. You know, like... Any good piece of art, I feel like I have more questions (laughs) now after watching the movie than before. So (laughs) we need a kids' movie with Kenneth Brenna in it. That's what we need. Yeah. This is what the teens demand. Like, I was a teen, I was a tween who wanted a movie with Kenneth Brenna in it. And here it is. Yeah. Oh, can you? Okay, Sarah. Mm -hmm. Before we ask our questions, can you? guide us can you take us on a tour through a uh, swing in 1939 hamburg can you take us through it so okay swing kids first the context swing kids is a movie that i saw in eighth grade when our humanities curriculum like in terms of movies was the 1960s lord of the flies Mm. The West Wing episode about 9-11. Oh, my God. (laughs) Schindler's List. Great. And this. 
And then at our end of uh, year pizza party, Joe Dirt. Oh, my God. <laughs> so those are the things that I watched in that room between 2001 and 2002. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. On a little corner mounted TV. And Swing Kids was my favorite. We want to hear from you, dear listener. What movies did you watch inexplicably in class on that weird TV that they rolled in while having a pizza party? Like, these are things that we want to know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I watched The Sandlot a lot. Of course. That's pretty educational. <laughs> anyway, so what's Swing Kids about? Swing Kids is a very depressing movie about four teenage boys living in Hamburg, Germany in 1939 during the rise of Nazism. And this is based on a real youth movement that happened, especially in, in Hamburg, but in Germany, where teenagers loved swing music and they would go out dancing to it and were fascinated by American culture and jazz culture, which of course was music where many of the musicians who really excelled were black or Jewish mm -hmm. or in some way not Nazi friendly surprise and where just kind of in an organic way that feels very true to life for me, just the love of music and the way it makes you feel kind of puts you in a position of conflict with the, the dominant fascist power because they don't want you to feel uh, all the ways that you can. And so this is about these very cute teenage boys and how they deal <laughs> with the rise of Nazism. And the specific turning point is that Robert Sean Leonard's character, Peter, <laughs> and Christian Bale's character, Thomas, are trying to steal a radio to bring to their friend Arvid, played by Frank Whaley, who they have just insulted because Thomas is a stupid hothead with a cute face and a dumb brain. So they want to steal a radio to bring to him. But then Peter is caught by the Nazis and he's forced to join the Hitler Youth. And then Thomas joins the Hitler Youth to keep him company. And wouldn't you know it, Thomas loves being in the Hitler Youth. He's like, I feel such a sense of direction and community. Right. And then Peter's mom, Barbara Hershey, is... <laughs> The casting of this movie is just wonderful. You're like, God, this must have been expensive. They spent a lot of money on Swing Kids, and no one talks about Swing Kids. Kenneth Branagh's in it. They also lost a lot of money on Swing Kids. Apparently. Because then, you know, you show it, and then America is like, I don't want to watch a movie about teenagers in Nazi Germany. I want to watch Teen Witch. They lost $2 for every one they spent on this movie. <laughs> Wow. But like, I'm so happy they made it. We have swing kids. Me too. I wish they didn't lose that money because it, it turns out we could have used a lot more movies about how uncool being in the Nazi youth is. Yeah, we could have. Right? <laughs> Everyone made fun of swing kids. Everyone was like, what's the point of making a movie about being a teenager when Nazis are taking over your country? And like, Look at that. We needed like five. This needed. I mean, like how many kid baseball movies are there? We needed at least that many kids resisting fascists movies. Yeah, totally. I think that we were just in such denial that we were like, well, we're never really going to need this. Right. Nobody needs. It's not like we're going to have a fascist takeover and like that, you know, people are going to be in serious danger of authoritarianism in America, of all places. It's not like we're ever going to have to worry about teenage boys being radicalized to fascism through encounters with seemingly benign cultural artifacts, like the <laughs> Joe Rogan show. So anyway, so yeah, so they join the HJ. Thomas gets really into it. They're called the HJ. Yeah. They're called... <laughs> The H.J. Why is that funny to you of all the things yeah. in this movie? Because a handjob is also called an H.J. Oh, I've actually <laughs> never heard that expression. <laughs> what, you expect them to say Hitler Jugend every time? They got to just say handjob. Yeah. I do like that this movie is one of those movies where everyone around them speaks in a German accent. Yes, oh my yes. God. And we know that they are German because of what's going on around them, but they're just American as apple pie and whatever Christian Bale does. It is very fun. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. It's Frank Whaley, you know, Robbie Krieger from, from, the, from uh, Oliver, Oliver Stone's, Stone's The Doors. The Doors. 
Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so Peter's mother, Barbara Hershey, also not bothering with an accent, no. I think. Right. Yeah, our protagonists do not bother with accents. <laughs> Imagine pitching this movie today. Okay. They're like, okay, we're going to make a movie about the rise of fascism. And they're like, okay, cool. Who's it from the perspective of? And they're like, Hitler Youth. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it's from the uh, it's from the enemy's perspective. But then uh, by the end of the movie, I was like, actually, not that we need movies from like the perspective of white supremacists, but like it is it would be helpful to have more movies seeing what it looks like to be indoctrinated and see people like get sucked into that, you know? So I think it makes mm-hmm. sense. By the end of it, it made sense to me. Well, and I feel like this movie like threads the needle because it's like our two main characters really are Peter and Thomas and they kind of start off as best Mm -hmm. friends who are very similar and then kind of go on diverging Mm -hmm. paths and Peter like flirts with like being like yeah I'm in the Hitler youth it's great but he's like a little bit too aware he's noticing stuff he's paying attention and then Mm -hmm. this all comes to a head when his job is to deliver little boxes to people whose husbands have been taken away and it turns out that he's delivering their remains to them yeah, you know when you're watching a kid's movie mm-hmm. and there's a whole scene <laughs> in which a kid has to deliver the cremated remains mm-hmm. to a spouse uh, who is now a widow. That, and again, we need this sort of thing. Yes. But just knowing again that I was like, I can see why it did not do well at the box office. Like I can see <laughs> the moms talking around the table <laughs> about the movie that they took their kid to. Yeah. And then being like, maybe skip this one. I feel like it's right for like 13 year olds. Like, I don't know who it's aimed yes. at, but I saw it when I was 13 and that was the right age. Yeah, definitely. Movies directed just flatly at teens that aren't about like sex or crushes, I feel like are we need way more of them, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but are also a real gamble in the box office. Like Newsies. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. I also just want to point out that the big difference between Peter and Thomas, Mm -hmm. because they basically start out two peas in a pod. They basically have the same outlook on life at the beginning of the movie. The big difference between them is that Peter is surrounded by people who are negatively affected by the regime. And Thomas Mm. is surrounded by people who Mm -hmm. essentially benefit or are neutral on it. So Peter... Bringing those boxes of cremated remains is the plot point that, you know, swings him in the other direction from turning into a full Nazi. Mm -hmm. Right. And we've set up this backstory that his father was taken away and tortured by the Nazis and came home no longer himself. Mm -hmm. And that there's this like father void in his family that his mother is trying to fill with Kenneth Branagh, Mm -hmm. the Nazi who brings them wine and chocolate. And then we have Arvid dies by suicide. Which, oh my God. Yeah, I know. This movie just goes right into it. It's like, and now here's the suicide. Come look at the suicide for about three minutes. It's a long suicide. It like, Yeah, this is certainly before the era of trigger warnings because like, he kills himself with a broken record, which mm-hmm. is just heartbreaking because he's... I don't know, because of who his character is, the fact that that's how he does it. And then they show him Mm -hmm. in the bathtub so intensely. Yeah, this is a children's movie with the Holocaust, with suicide, with like just I can't believe all of the very adult things that are happening in this children's movie. Truly, this was a time when basically the only way to conscientiously object was to die. And I mean, there's just there's not a lot of wishful thinking in this uh and by the way the fourth character is otto who's like only sort of in it um but he's nice we we love him he's the bass player the (laughs) bass player of the movie perfectly cast (laughs) as how much he shows up in the plot (laughs) he's just like there looking concerned he's got a nice energy Mm -hmm. peter has a younger brother named willie who's nine And so it ends basically with Thomas going full Nazi, turning in his parents for pissing him off. Oh, my God. Like the kid in the Twilight Zone. (laughs) (laughs) Just wishes them into the cornfield, he does. (laughs) And then Peter is like, I'm not going to become a Nazi for for I don't need to explain why he decides that, you you know, 
And so he goes to uh, the Cafe Bismarck, where they always used to party. And just I, one of the things I love about this movie, apparently I love movies partly because they have historical parties I would like to be at. And like all of the mm-hmm. like swing club, all of the dancing scenes are wonderful and kind of mm-hmm. balance the horribleness of all of this, of everything that happens when people who aren't dancing. And so Peter goes and dances alone with all of the anguish in his soul and then the club is raided and he's taken away to a work camp. And the last like hopeful moment is that Thomas like breaks his like cold, dead American psycho stare and is like <laughs> swing Heil. And they say swing Heil at each other. And then Peter is carted off kind of to certain death. Yeah. So yeah. the end, have a fun time. And then it's like implied that Willie is like part of the next generation of swing kids who will see the end of Nazism, which is like nice, but it's like, wow, all of our characters are dead or Nazis, except Otto. Where's Otto? Yeah, where is Otto? We don't get any conclusions on him. My big takeaway at the end of this movie was why did they decide to do it like this? And also, I don't think Peter is a very good brother. (laughs) that's a good point like I couldn't help but watching this whole you know Peter's whole arc from the perspective of Willie who has lost his father doesn't know why doesn't know what happened and is asking for some answers from from Peter from his older brother who essentially just kind of like shoves him off Mm -hmm. and then instead of figuring out which like I'm not saying that I would know the right way to dissent in uh, 1939 Hamburg but like it feels like instead of like figuring out a way to help the next generation he Mm. he like sort of martyrs himself Mm -hmm. and then leaves his little brother who I think gets that like he needs to go in Peter's shadow but also is very young and is left to be under the guidance of the Gestapo guy I mean to be fair the reason they're both on their own is their dad was taken from them (laughs) well I know but it just feels like it leaves Willie in like a much more vulnerable spot to be thrown into Nazism in the future because Mm -hmm. like because his mom is like, she's all for it. She's like, I'm going to do whatever I have to survive. We're women, Rose. Our choices are never easy. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. That was kind of my last thought was that like, okay, well, I, th- I feel like he is not uh, being protected, but uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, yeah, it's like, okay, Willie, you're nine. Carry forward the legacy of the swing kids. Have fun with that. Right, yeah. I'm sure you have all of the tools uh, available to make sure that you do that appropriately. I mean, I feel like it's a great illustration of the point that Sarah made earlier where it's like your options are pretty limited, right? Like your options are dying in some way or getting arrested or resisting and having it obviously be symbolically meaningful, but like in the face of the machine that you're up against, potentially very insignificant. Mm -hmm. And so like, I feel like it illustrated that pretty nicely, but yeah, it's a bleak we have a bleak ending where we have him being taken away to certain death, his brother representing the face, and then just like post game credits that are like, it's fine eventually, but it's real bad in the lead up to it getting fine. I think it, it, the movie, considering we talk so much about like dad dynamics, there's so much going on in this movie mm-hmm. along those lines. There's Peter's dad getting taken, there's Thomas's dad being to your point carolyn uh, someone who is doing well under this regime but still gets taken away i think like the Mm -hmm. other thing that it illustrates really well is like there's no right way to be under this for you to succeed it's going to get you in some way or another probably but no i thought like as far as you know peter has haunted this entire movie by knowing his dad was taken but not knowing if his dad was cool in the face of it or should be admired and then learning tidily through a letter that like his dad actually did love them and that gives him the strength that he needs to do the right thing which yeah that's glad they found that letter (laughs) 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 but also you know it's funny because this movie is so full of like what happens when you don't have a father that leaves you open for like a bad father figure to come Mm. in and like sweep you away because uh the gestapo guy comes in and is basically like 
I lost my father in the first world war. And then the fatherland is who is taking care of me now. Mm -hmm. So that's who I am loyal to is the fatherland because the first world war took away a whole generation of men. And so therefore it left this like void available for people to like fall into this pit of Nazism because they were like trying to fill that, that void. Mm -hmm. I mean, among other things, obviously, which is, I think, why I was, like, concerned for Willie, because that's, like, now he's lost both of his father figures, which leaves him open for the worst dad to come in and affect him in the future. Yeah. Right. And then it's the same with Thomas. And I love how it shows. I think that, like, to me, one of the smartest things about this movie is that we start off with Dreamboat Christian Bale, who initially, <laughs> like, kind of hates the Nazis most of all. And then is like, mm -hmm. oh, I actually, this is really nice. I don't really have a relationship with my dad and I feel a part of something and I get to like run little obstacle races and eat hot dogs. Yeah. I feel like they do a really great job of showing the mechanics of fascism. You are punished, obviously, for dissenting in any way, shape or form and then not even if you promote it, but if you just go along with it. Let me see. I wrote this line down, actually. Mm. He says, just play along and we get whatever we want, which, yeah, I think they show a really good job of of how easy it is to be sucked into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel like what maybe my criticism of this as an adult, and I'm not even sure if this is a criticism, is that like at the end, like the question is like, well, how do you live? Like, how do you both survive and resist under Nazism? And the movie is like, ah, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but also, like, I don't know. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I think, like, my other criticism of this as an adult is, like, for a movie called Swing Kids, there's actually not as much swing as I was hoping. For. I know. I kind of misremembered <laughs> there being yeah. more swing dancing in this movie. That's kind of what I think of when I think about it, mm -hmm. obviously, because it's the fun part. Right. Yeah, you don't think about like the most momentous, uh, terrible event that has happened like in the last, you know, 100 years. <laughs> I do think that like there are like a few interesting, fun things that happen within the group of boys before we're like fully thrown into Nazi drama, which first of all, I can't believe that they basically open this movie with a pee scene with like that showing them peeing that. on a wall boys peeing i think on a poster on a nazi poster right yes yeah on a yeah. nazi poster but i just couldn't believe that they actually showed the pee that felt like pretty graphic to me <laughs> i feel like i must have seen a lot of pee movies growing up yeah really Totally. That was like a, kid, a movie for kids had pee in it. That's just what it did. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like such a Pollyanna now. I was like shocked by the pee. <laughs> yeah. My favorite movie, Little Monsters, had a lot of pee in it. There was a lot of pee in Little Monsters. Yeah. <laughs> you know who hated that pee? Gene Siskel. <laughs> Specifically. Did not like it. Didn't your boy Ebert hate this movie as well? The, both your boys? Did they both hate this movie? I think, wait, let's see. I think I remember reading a Roger Ebert review of Swing Kids and being sad that he didn't like it, but this was like 20 years ago. He put it in his montage of worst movies of the year. Oh, no. And he gave it one of four stars. That seems dramatic. Wow. I have his review. Let's hear some. Oh, one star, Roger. <laughs> okay. If the Swing Kids had evolved into an underground movement dedicated to the overthrow of Nazism, we might be onto something here. But no. A title card at the end of the film informs us that some of the kids died at the hands of the Nazis and others were forced into the German army and killed in battle. But some survived. And after the war, there were still Swing Kids in Germany. Isn't that terrific? No doubt they continue even to this day, celebrating their 70th birthdays by boogieing to the bugle call rag. Oh my God. Nero, who fiddled while Rome burned, could have been the original swing kid. Oh my God. And it goes on. Yep. So yeah, did not like it. You know, I mean, I, fair point. I guess really like it. Here's a point Roger makes that I, I, this, I think this is a good point. He says, in an attempt to show Nazi propaganda at work, the film does include some of Hitler's anti-Semitic propaganda, which is reproduced in such great detail and with such fidelity to its sources that I grew uncomfortable. The racist remarks against Jews in the movie are allowed to go unanswered, except by the dire implication, of course, that if it weren't for Jews, you wouldn't have the music of Benny Goodman and Artie Shaw. 
that's that's a fair point because I think a lot of the reason that people kind of fall into authoritarianism or white supremacy now is that like we're not very literate as a country about like what is propaganda and what's not. Mm. And so even just the fact that like you can casually hear people on podcasts saying that like, you know, Jews control the economy and things like that. I think I think it is important that we see propaganda, but then also you have to have the follow up to like make it fully clear like that that's propaganda, which I don't know. Do you feel like they're doing that in this movie that they're making that clear? Well, the thing, you know, the thing that I appreciated about this was there was not. Like I, the thing that I think makes this movie the most confusing is the who is it for? Mm. And if we had mm-hmm. like a slightly clearer sense of who it was for, I think in that question out of mind, what I did appreciate is that there's not a tidy resolution, right? Like there's not like there is a tidy moment where he realizes the boxes he's delivering have ashes in them. Mm-hmm. He makes the connection to his father, et cetera. But like, he buys in for a while. Mm-hmm. He's parroting talking points without realizing that he's parroting talking points. It has to be drawn to his attention. Like there is a long actual tension in the movie that I think like can feel maybe sometimes a little reckless because by like having that like prolonged tension, you have people repeating talking points that are difficult, that are wrong, that are hateful, that are anti-Semitic. But it is important to show when people were struggling sort of with these ideas, when people are struggling with these ideas now, that it's not just like a magic, like you read the right line and you're finally like, oh, I was on the wrong side of this all along. Right. And it's like actually kind of like a progressive process. But, you know, a downside of doing that is you don't have somebody clearly stating regularly in the movie movie that thing that was just said is unequivocally wrong, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is something that, you know. A lot of people enjoy and expect from media that says things that are potentially harmful. Mm-hmm. Well, then I feel like we have Peter's nice lady friend, Frau Lind. I can't remember names. I'm too old. <laughs> who he visits, who basically he's like repeating this propaganda to. And he's like, and I think she becomes a character who represents his conscience uh, in this movie. Because yeah. like everyone else around him is pretty much ready to buy in. And she's the only one who is sort of who's like, no, you you don't have to do this. There's more to you than this. And there was more to your father than this. And, you know, being taken down by the Nazis rather than collaborating with them doesn't make you a coward. Mm-hmm. And she has that connection because he's making deliveries to her house. Part of his job before he joins the HJ is <laughs> he is delivering books for his boss. And his boss is, we find out, um, through some th- some fun little plot twists that the books have documents that are helping people escape. Mm-hmm. They have fake birth certificates. They have, or helping people evade the worst. Mm-hmm. And this is how he encounters her. And her husband, it turns out, was a student of his father. And his father was a respected violinist mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who was taken away, was tortured kind of lost his grip with reality a bit after being tortured and then and then killed i believe is that the is that the order of operations mm-hmm. and so yeah I, th- I i like your take sarah that she ends up being his conscience because she's walking him through his decision making hearing some of the more egregious stuff that he's saying pointing out that it's egregious for the reasons that he's saying it and then helping him be able to see his father in a way that he has not been able to see his father. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think like what they're doing here with, you know, we've spoken a bit about sort of losing a generation of fathers and losing a generation of men. And then like the void that that creates and et cetera. I do like that. This is a meditation on what a kid who's confused about the absence of his father ultimately means and where he should turn next as a result, mm-hmm. whether he's conscious yeah. or not. Cause I think often, you know, you look at how many people are, were looking for a stern daddy in Trump right. who reminded a lot of people of their loving in a weird way, but fucked up in a lot of other ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, you, you realize how often history repeats itself. One plot point that I found really interesting is sorry i keep forgetting his name but the gestapo guy who's like flirting with with peter's mom i i just call him kenneth Branagh. yeah, yeah. <laughs> famous shakespearean dreamboat 
Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> Star of Dead again, Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> yeah. So when he is trying to get Peter to spy on the bookseller, mm-hmm. he says something along the lines of, you should know what you're signing up for before you sign up mm-hmm. for it. Which is interesting because in both when he's delivering books for the bookseller and then also when he's when he's delivering packages for the H.J., he's doing the same thing. Mm. He like hasn't asked any questions mm-hmm. before doing either of them. Mm-hmm. And mm. yeah, I just, I thought it was interesting that in both situations, he looks at the packages and those are both deciding points as to which way he is going to, going to lean. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, we often are, you know, just delivering packages because it's what we're supposed to do. And we don't really, we right. don't know what we're delivering. Yeah. yeah, and so many jobs that are part of a destructive machine, you're just like doing a little like conduit part of it where you're just like delivering mm-hmm. the package or you're writing the code or you're like, right. you know, that this is how it breaks down in really destructive kind of giant machines that we often are a part of just because it's like what's hiring in our town or whatever. Right. What I liked about this movie at the time, aside from all the cute boys, which certainly was a big draw, that was the main draw, cute boys. But aside from that, eighth grade was the year when we studied the Holocaust, and I feel like that is how it falls for a lot of other students. But I feel like we didn't really learn or try to understand, like, sort of the human element in how this all happens, Mm -hmm. you know, because and we were still kind of I think we got a good education on what happened, but not necessarily on why. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. and that this movie kind of dares to be like, you know what? Cute teenage boys, sometimes they're perfectly nice as far as you can tell they look like christian bale and then because there's like a hole that fascism fills for them and they are just like morally vacant enough to not think about what's going on it can happen it's a thing that happens and like what other movie talked about that yeah yeah right when you present all of that information in the way that you would present it to eighth graders like it is very easy to look at it and be like well i for one would just not be a nazi yeah Mm mm-hmm Right, exactly. And it's like, again, this movie, for what it's doing, does a really great job of being like, turns out, wasn't that simple. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Turns Turns out, all of the like little pieces of how power ends up working in the movie is like when when Kenneth Breno comes and talks with Peter, he's getting to a place where he's letting him know that he shouldn't be doing these deliveries for the bookseller, Mm -hmm. but he front ends all of that information with like stuff that they can, he's doing really great in school. We really appreciate that. Who doesn't want to be told, told they're doing great in school. There's an opportunity for Peter's grandmother to go on a vacation, the family to go on a vacation together. Like that's great. Amazing. And then it's like, Oh, by the way, this thing that you're doing, maybe don't do that. And it's like, I think everyone expects that someone's going to come to their door and go, today's the day that you make the morally correct decision or you make the morally Mm -hmm. corrupt decision. And it turns out it's like a series of things that you need to interrogate, like literally looking into the package that you're delivering so that you can fully understand the scope of what you're dealing with. And looking at what you're being told not to look at. Yes. Yes. And I think Arvid puts it really well when he like blows up basically at everybody and says like, it's not about playing the one German song when he's, he's given a request by some Germans, by some Nazi soldiers. Yeah. To play like a German song. And also Arvid is kind of like a Django Reinhardt head who yep. was Romani and who <laughs> was disabled. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I, I was like kind of surprised that there was so much Django in this movie. What's his name? Django Man? Like that's what he performs as? Yeah. Hair Hitman. Django Man. Django Man. Also just... A sidebar, I think it's hilarious that they were able to so accurately display what it's like to be a teenage hipster boy. Like you're like, you're quizzing each other on what the cool <laughs> slang is yeah, so I that you don't that. say the wrong thing. Like that's, they're basically the same character as uh, what's that guy in like 500 days of summer. Who's like, you know, who's like super into the Smiths, but like maybe a little bit less uh, douchey. <laughs> I know. I love how they're like annoying in this movie as well. Yeah, like they that's are. what makes it feel real. <laughs> well, they're so annoying and they're also like very obvious. <laughs> and I, I say that with love. Yeah. They also like just a perfect moment that is that I don't even think he realized he was doing it it's like 
here are all of these white German kids mm-hmm. getting into jazz. And the perfect moment is when Peter starts listening and he's trying to explain jazz and like how to dance to the love interest. And then he starts snapping on one in three, which is <laughs> yeah, like the yeah. whitest thing you could possibly do. And he is so confident about it. I love that throughout the movie, Peter is not that great at the thing that he loves. No, because yeah. because look, they could have hired a great dancer. Did they? No, no. they hired sure Robert Sean Leonard. They hired Mr. A of Innocence. And I love that. And I love how like the final scene, he's like, he's dancing his heart out. And he's like, he's dancing the way I would dance, which is like with a, a ton yeah. of spirit. But like, sir, you know, he's he's like just a, a guy. Yeah, it's great. He's doing a lot of high kicks. There's a little bit of kitten play in his moves. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which I do think that America and just everywhere in general would be a lot better if we had more opportunities for partner dancing just in general and just dancing in general, not just partner dancing, but I think partner dancing is really important and it makes me really sad that most people don't have the opportunity to experience it in their lives. I think this is part of why people are forced to continue to get married is that it's one of the only parties you can have that can force adults to like travel distance to like come mm-hmm. dance around together. Like if there was more adult dancing, there would be fewer marriages. I genuinely yeah. believe that. Mm. I'm going to think about that one for a while. <laughs> but that's the thing is that there are other people who host parties. I think it's just that we don't know about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I, one of the great joys in my life is that I go to this festival in Louisiana, which Louisiana, huge dance culture, mm-hmm. the best. And you just go and you, and you dance and, Alex calls it Zydeco camp, which is hilarious, but it's not, it's not just Zydeco, but you just, you partner dance like all week and it's so fun. Um, and you learn how to dance with each other and you don't have to be good at it. Mm -hmm. You just show up and you, and you learn as you go, but you know, it's, it's kind of all over. There's, you know, great two-stepping in Nashville and Mm. in Tennessee and in Texas, there's like a massive, you know, partner dancing scene, like in the Northern parts of Mexico and Mm -hmm. in Southern Southern California, kind of like Norteño culture. Mm. So it's mm-hmm. it's out there. We just don't, you know, and I, yeah. I say we as in like white America just doesn't know about it and is afraid to access it. Yeah. And I saw actually I saw uh, Eric Michael Garcia post something yesterday that was a quote from the actor who just passed recently uh, who was in shoot. I can't remember. Mm. But one the quote was something along the lines of like, you would rather live in shit than have people see you with a shovel. Mm. That's true. I would. Yeah. <laughs> Which I loved that quote because I think that's part of what's going on with some of the characters in this movie mm. in the sense that like they're just trying to keep their lives going in whatever way they can. And for them, that means like choosing the path of re- least resistance in every moment that they can. And I think mm. Arvid puts it really well at the dance where he's like, it's not about not playing the song. It's not any of these little things. It's like a death by a thousand cuts that you have to make a thousand Mm -hmm. decisions of inaction that lead up to one big, terrible movement. Mm -hmm. Right. Which is like so defining of this present moment in which fascism has, you know, like it's just like America, America has always and long been since the beginning, especially since the beginning ripe for authoritarian swells like it is founded of an authoritarian swell and then just has been sort of like a consistent amount of like different sorts of swells since Mm -hmm. and what is so defining about our moment we've spoken to this in a handful of different ways is like i think that there are a lot of people and you know the most the most intense version of it is like a person who showed up at January 6th or a person who like really loves Jordan Peterson or whatever. But I think like the most intense and then on, well, obviously the most intense one are like people who are like, I am a white supremacist and I have guns and I'm ready to use them. And then everything down is people feel like it's not bad because they, again, were not approached to say, are you a Nazi or not a Nazi? Mm -hmm. And so that's enough. Like I, haven't made in a pronouncement that I'm necessarily the worst person in the world. Although some people are now just embracing the term fascist. So like there's that, but as Arvid is trying to remind everyone, it is kind of in every decision you make Mm -hmm. and in 
the totality of those decisions put together where you will be assessed and where you're where history will judge what you did <laughs> is not in you saying what you are or not but in how your actions combined uh played out well this is a great uh tie into the whole dad thing because the dad fantasy is okay one big thing is gonna happen in my life yeah. and then i can save my daughter or whatever mm-hmm. i can like keep my family from being taken blah 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 get off my plane yeah exactly (laughs) and then i'm the hero so i've only had to do one thing instead of having to show up every day in life yeah and yeah i think you're right alex like our big fantasy especially as like you know white liberals is like okay when the big moment happens i will be ready and i will do it and there is no big moment there's just every day yeah Yes, there's like every day. And I feel I hope that like everyone now and at least in the United States is like painfully aware of this, right? We're like, we know what our country is doing. And like, Mm -hmm. all of us are sitting here making a podcast. And like, that isn't counter to like trying to affect what our country is up to. And in fact, I would say that unfortunately, for me, making topical podcasts is kind of the best way I have to like, fight American fascism. It's one of the most sustainable ways I've found. And yet when you put it that way, you're like, oh, well, as long as you're making a podcast, you know, but like the reality is that we're all like very tiny and fascism is very big. And again, I feel like Swing Kids is kind of pointing that out in a time when no one else wanted to. Mm -hmm. Right. Because like it's like, again, the other another fantasy that goes along with the like you know i'll be tested and i'll say the right thing is that you know countering this machinery somehow works like a video game from like the early 90s where it's like you Mm. you go through a number of levels and then you find the right lever and you pull the lever and all the bad things go away Mm -hmm. it's like very unfortunately it is an extremely compounded and complex and intentionally convoluted system right which means like you kind of constantly have to assess and ask yourself if you do want to be taking meaningful action in the face of it what that means and assume that that might be changing on a regular basis because it's not always going to be the same thing the conditions are always going to be changing your relationship with it will always be shifting and changing yeah So, yeah, I mean, I think like I think a lot of people are left being like, you know, and this is how the systems are designed to work is I can't do anything. So fuck it. I'll just join the system and I get a cool motorcycle like Mm -hmm, we see in this movie. (laughs) Exactly. Right. As Peter's mom said or Peter says to his mom, they're Nazis. You can't like cooperate with them. And then she says, but the whole country is Nazis. Mm -hmm. So it's like, are you going to not cooperate with everybody in the country? And it's like in America, you know, it's like. Well, he's racist. Well, it's like everybody's in this co- in this country is racist, but that doesn't mean that you don't do anything. It means that the problem's bigger than just the one person that you're trying to deal with that's like coming through your door and asking you questions, right? Mm-hmm. And then this also reminds me of the conversation that we've been having on over in You're Wrong About Land uh, in the Karen Carpenter episodes. Sarah, you said something mm-hmm. along the lines of, you know, when you do the right thing for your body like you're not rewarded for it and it doesn't feel good. And like the self-destruction does feel good often. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Like when you're making these decisions in your everyday life, like doing the right thing is never going to, it's not going to feel good and it's not going to be rewarding, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And you will, you will be rewarded for not doing the right thing. Like you'll be rewarded for falling into fascism because like, that's how you stay safe. Mm hmm. And then, as as I think that this movie does illustrate pretty well, is that even that is finite. Like, there mm-hmm. are some people who will be rewarded forever for falling into it. And there's some people who will be like, I'm doing everything the system told me to do. And the system is still going to eat them. Mm-hmm. So, right. like, you're going to get eaten, right? Like, you're going right. to get eaten at some point on, on whose terms do you want it to be. Mm. Yeah. That's what Ray Fine said in the menu. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. I think, like, Arvid's approach was... I mean, I get it. Like, it's like you're going to be eaten one way or another on whose terms is it going to be? Or, mm. you know, if it means going and, you know, punching Nazis, that's great. If it means fucking up part of the system and you're going to maybe go away earlier than uh, the system had planned for you, 
this isn't going to take you down in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't and you you do all the the quote right things and you become evil, then the cosmic justice is going to get you. So you got to kind of make decisions in the face of knowing that you're fucked anyway. Right. On whose clock do you want to be fucked? Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. And even if there is to you know, if if one is hesitant to believe in cosmic justice, it's also worth pointing out that if you become you know, if you like really get with the Nazis, then like then then you become the person who does those things. Like you lose your humanity right. piece by piece, you know, or at least you lose all communication with it, because in order to continue to torture and kill people or, or at least to enthusiastically support a regime that does like you have to justify that to yourself or you have to do it. Mm-hmm. And like, I think one of the realities of violence is that like committing violence does horrible things to you, you know? Yeah. And that's not to say that, that you're a victim, but just that nobody comes out unscathed by it. Everybody comes out changed, even if yeah. you survive. And I also, it's my personal fan theory that Arvid is named after Arvid Harnack, mm. who was a German academic who, along with his American wife, Mildred Fish, who he met at UW-Madison, yay, uh, were executed <laughs> by the Nazis for resisting oh. them. So it's also like, you know, what are your choices? Like, if you resist the Nazis in any real way, like, historically, like... They tended to execute you, you know, so it's also it's that it's that Highlander 2 question of like, are you going to use your life force over the course of your entire life or in one moment? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's a that's such a great way to put it is it's like it's going to be used. Where are you going to use it? (laughs) Right. Well, so I know that you two have not watched The Last of Us, but the rest of us on the planet have been. And um, (laughs) it's the same question being posed in The Last of Us, which it's not Nazis. It's death in general or like entropy is going to be coming for you. How do you decide to live your life if death is coming for you no matter what, which is true for all of us? I've heard. And also fa- fascism is also coming for all of us. Like, how do we decide to use our very finite moments that are that are left? Like, do we decide to die fighting? Do we decide to die helping others? I mean, it's the same thing that we posed in the Titanic question. Like, mm-hmm. it's going down. Mm-hmm. The ship is going down. How do we act in our final moments? Yeah. And if we know that our final moments are coming, our only sense of control left is do we get to decide when and how it happens. I feel like the, so Roger Ebert's big, I think the main thing he disliked about swing kids is that he felt the swing kids were not political enough. Like they weren't paying attention to what would like, they, they didn't really have anything against Nazis originally, except that the Nazis hated swing and they love swing. So they were like, Hey, (laughs) and I, and I often disagree with Roger Ebert. And I think he makes, you know, some good points in this review, but my feeling about it is that like, that is what teenagers are like. And, you know, and that like there are are plenty of teenagers who are like really thoughtful and have ideas about human rights and are like there's tons of teenagers like that. And there's also tons of teenagers who are just kind of concerned with their immediate lives. And we can't expect teenagers to be these great activists all the time, partly because it seems to be bad for the teenagers, (laughs) you know, and just like showing what felt to me like a realistic depiction of being an adolescent where like you don't know much about the world but you know it feels good and you know it feels bad mm-hmm. and how that can actually like steer you pretty well i don't know i stand by this movie <laughs> yeah i think i mean it's it speaks to the most i forget who i heard say this but it's you know it, it i'm sure many people have said it in many different ways but like culture is right upstream from politics mm-hmm. right so like often someone's politics are shaped by their interface with culture more than their culture is inter- shaped but with their interface with politics mm. yeah i mean there's a reason why a huge part of the american and sarah you spoke to this in last week's episode of, of you're wrong about the mm. import of providing ice cream to the uh troops to keep morale up like mm-hmm. that's culture sort of playing into the politic of fighting the war there's a reason why you know, the, the U.S. hired some of the leading cultural theorists to, like, help develop and devise and disseminate American propaganda that required sort of, like, putting out American music as part of sort of recruiting people, not just, like, on the basis of being, like, do you want to follow whatever our politic is or do you want to start with, like, what your interest in our culture?
nature is and then we go from there right. and i think that you know uh say what you will and i understand i have very similar feelings a lot of the time about about what making a podcast does in this moment but i do think that like if part of the widget that you're making is a cultural artifact that is meant to get people within a particular community to think about their relationship with empathy and how they interface with the world in a meaningful way. Sure as fuck is doing a lot more than a lot of things that people are making in mm. this place. If nothing else, people are going to watch Swing Kids because of us. And that's not nothing. Not everyone got to see this movie in eighth grade. Yeah. It, that's a huge part of what frustrates me a lot about like modern sort of hyper left internet discourse is it's like yeah you didn't come to the right conclusion for my reason and mm. that's wrong and it's like some people need a gentler off-ramp than being sort of enmeshed mm. in heady academic philosophical texts like i yeah. think it's totally fine that a lot of people became leftists because they read the reading list provided by rage against the machine's evil empire i think that <laughs> right. that's totally okay like it doesn't have to have been a pure off-ramp and also like not everyone including me, has the patience to read a Howard Zinn book. Yeah. Those books are thick and there are no pictures. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with Christian Bale's character, I think part of the reason that he leans into Nazism as opposed to not eventually is because he's mm. not like actually super duper interested in the music, really. I think he's more interested in being American than being a swing kid right he's a cowboy yeah being american and being a nazi are like not actually that different mm -hmm. and yeah well, let's see what his line is he says i'm not a traitor i'm a cowboy and you're a pansy that's like one of his first big lines and and we also know that he's a fighter like he gets into that boxing fight mm -hmm. as a way to you know like avenge arvid who never asked him to and arvid says i never asked you to fight him he's more interested in throwing fists than than actually being like a swing kid which is kind of mm. more of a collectivist mindset i think in the first place which is also mm. what partner dancing is you know is like you're being you're part of something you're being a partner in movement this dynamic is a huge dynamic that happens in punk communities where it's like in theory the sort of overarching very simplified punk philosophies start at maybe like a nihilist center and then have like left-wing approaches ideals mm -hmm. but then there's always in every scene mm -hmm. particularly in hardcore scenes there's like a handful of guys who are just like this is a great place to fuck people up mm -hmm. like this is like a great excuse to just be violent and then are very easily co-opted and adopted into the like fascist offshoots of punk mm -hmm. so his whole thing looks very familiar to that and exists like in a lot of sort of subcultures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. We also haven't talked about the fact that Arvid is, we have, you you mentioned in passing, Carolyn, that Arvid is physically handicapped. His, his, he has a club foot. Yeah, he has a club foot. And Thomas tells him, he's like, he straight up gives him the Nazi mm -hmm. reality line where yeah. he's like, we're coming for you next. Mm -hmm. Right. He says, if I were you, I would only worry about myself because mm -hmm. we're coming for you next. Right. Which is... Yeah, so telling. So so telling. And I do love... Yeah, I love that that was an entry. And then he has his hand broken. Uh, his Many of his fingers and his hand broken is only, only uh, for an index finger work. And that's when he starts relating even harder than normal to Django Reinhardt, which is... Right. In, in, again, an interesting thing for a movie directed at kids in the 90s is those big Django heads out there. Well, it worked because <laughs> I got into Django Reinhardt immediately. I was like, who's this Django Reinhardt? <laughs> I was wondering how you how you had so much Django Reinhardt in your repertoire. And this makes sense. I think one reason that I'm glad that I watched this movie is that it reacquainted myself with one of my biggest fears, which is as you grow older, well, this is a line in the movie. It's only with age that you begin to see life as a series of compromises. Yeah, yeah. And one of my biggest fears in life is that as you grow older, you won't be able to see or discern when your compromises are hurtful to yourself or to others. Hmm. So I'm grateful that I watched this movie and it gave me a way to just reflect on that and reflect on my choices. Yeah, which is what you want from a, a Buena Vista release yeah that's true yeah i love that this movie was made somehow it's a blessing yeah it's very easy with all of the media that is readily consumable to feel like 
there's nothing, absolutely nothing that can be done in the face of all of this. Mm -hmm. And maybe there isn't a lever that we can pull satisfyingly to stop it all, you know, abruptly. But there are many meaningful ways to day to day make decisions that at the very least, particularly if you have more privilege than, than others, at the very least can like make it a more tolerable and bearable place to be uh, for both yourself mm -hmm. and like some of the people that are around you. Mm -hmm. Yes. And well, yeah, and the, the kind of tininess of any individual in the face of something like this, like Habcat can't be broken. That's true. Unless it's Christian Bale. Yeah. I mean, and truly, it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. So we know Peter's father existed. Mm -hmm. Who, in your view, is the daddy? Mm. I think I am going to say Frau Ling. Lynch, Ling. Basically, Peter's older friend who slowly but surely kind of chips away at his, you know, Nazi tendencies and, and opens him up to other perspectives because I don't know. I think about this a lot in terms of I have a lot of conservative family and sometimes I, I think about like, okay, like what are the the small ways in which I can just like ask enough questions that maybe eventually, hopefully I can at least open a door so that maybe they can investigate some of their more, hurtful ideas and yeah I don't know I just I think seeing her made me feel a little bit more hopeful that it's not gonna happen like all in one shot you can't just like sit someone down and be like hey have you considered not being a bigoted fascist but uh <laughs> you know yeah and she and and Herr Schumler are the only kind of adult moral presences in the movie unless I'm missing somebody mm -hmm. yes no I think you're right so she's my daddy I'm also gonna give a just a special nod to Peter when he steals the radio and he loves music so much that he can't let right go of the radio. And that's why he gets caught, which I think is such a beautiful metaphor where like, I feel like that all the time. I'm like, I love this thing so much. I can't let it go. And then it gets me in trouble. I'm looking at the list of who's in this movie. And I know that we just mentioned her in passing, but like, this is another movie that's like, Oh shit, we got to have a love interest, right? Don't we have to have a oh, love God, interest? Yeah. And it's Evie. And they just like, kind of do it and then they give up on it immediately <laughs> yeah i know that the movie just kind of forgets about her doesn't it yeah, it's just like oh we're out of time i also like poor evie the one time she comes out swing dancing like the first time the club gets raided and they have to escape it's not making a good impression mm -mm. yeah maybe evie ends up with otto and otto is fine i hope that, that happens Aww. I like that. If Otto's fine, we don't know. I I'm gonna make I, I'm this is so on the nose. I'm a little upset about being this on the nose, but uh Peter, I'm gonna say it's Peter. He's not like the overall daddy, but like he finally, like a dad, takes a very long time to see the writing on the wall. He has to <laughs> literally have the evidence in his hands. We haven't even talked yes. about the when he yells, like the, the scene where he realized what's happened and they like slow it down. Oh my God. Yeah. It's oh pretty over the top scene. I love it. But he finally comes to after a lot of intervention from every single thing around him, he finally makes the right choice. And I, I'm glad for well him. he finally takes a big swing and um, <laughs> but also the part where he realizes that he's been delivering cremated remains he drops the box and the cremains go everywhere and then he never delivers it so then the family never knows what happens to their father which is awful I did think about that. This is a great point Carolyn yeah I mean again it's like I think this movie suffered truly for its relatability, where it's like, as a teenager, you don't want to be told that, like, in the Third Reich, you would have kind of just been a shitty teenager. Right. You know? But that's what you would be. Yep. My daddy, of course, is Arvid. I'm so happy that this episode turned into a meeting of the Arvid fan club. <laughs> I love that character. I had a giant crush on him in Aww. eighth grade because I am an impassioned killjoy who cries when I get angry and, like, wants like. And... I also have to point out, Alex, whenever you and I are doing, you know, we're on tour or, you know, doing a live podcast on the Joko Cruise or whatever it is that we get up to as a result of making a podcast together, as opposed to being in academia and whatever you used to do, we will look at each other and say, beats work. 
And Frank Whaley, who played Arvid, that's I took that from him. It's a combination of the guy in the John Mulaney story who says beats work, but also there's uh, Frank Whaley has a very cute podcast with his wife, Heather. And I think described like acting as a way of like growing up and like seeing the world and like getting paid for doing something that you like doing. Mm -hmm. And that's a nice, I love seeing the arts that way. Like you don't every day have to think about like, am I changing the world and how much just like calm down and let it happen and realize that you've pulled off a great trick by somehow feeding yourself by doing something that you don't hate. Yeah. Just living in the country in the world that we do any moment like Peter does any moment that we can choose to have fun and any moment that we can choose to live in art is an act of defiance. Mm. Yeah, and not play the song that the Nazis are asking you to play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of songs, Carolyn Kendrick, do you have any new music in the world that people should know about? It's so funny you should ask. I actually just released a new song yesterday on St. Patrick's Day. The song doesn't have anything to do with St. Patrick or snakes or anything like that, but it is called Walker Clay. And it is about a real life couple that I met in Arkansas one time when my car broke down and I went to the Cracker Barrel and I met this couple that drove a big rig together. And so I wrote them a love song. And I love this song. I love this song. I happened to be there when this happened and we broke down on Super Bowl Sunday in Little Rock and Mm -hmm. I would or the weekend of the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. And if you want to go without help for several days, breakdown in Little yep. Rock on Super Bowl weekend. <laughs> yeah. We had a lovely time. We ate Domino's at the La Quinta. Oh, we had stuffed crust pizza. Yeah, we did. And uh, I was a stuffed crust after that weekend. Uh, <laughs> sorry, that sounded sexual. I didn't mean it, did. it like that. And it was. <laughs> See you later, guys. Bye. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Thank you so much to Carolyn Kendrick for producing this episode. Thank you so much to Miranda Zickler for editing this episode. Thank you so much to Carolyn Kendrick again for joining us as a guest on this episode. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon or Apple podcast subscriptions. Again, you got bonus episodes. We appreciate your support. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter at YouAreGoodPod. Thank you, of course, to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats that make this show sound so sweet. And don't forget that you, my friend, are good. <laughs>